Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Scholze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $149 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So we'd like to welcome back everybody from summer vacation. And although it was likely a lot different this year with the U.S. and many global economies still dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're going to get some global perspective today on the virus as I'm joined in the virtual podcast booth by two members of our international growth team. Elisa Mazin, head of global growth at ClearBridge, joins us from just around the corner from me here in New Jersey, <laughs> while portfolio manager Pavel Robuski is our first international guest on the ClearBridge podcast, joining us all the way across the pond from Warsaw, Poland, where he's been over the last several months. Elisa, Pavel, thank you for joining me here in the virtual booth. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be here. Now, while U.S. markets have been in the headlines with the robust recovery from the initial COVID-related sell-off, certain segments of non-U.S. equity markets have also staged a strong comeback, especially on the growth side. And due to the makeup of these markets, valuations may remain relatively more attractive in many sectors compared to the U.S. Now, we're going to get to those shortly in today's podcast titled Gauging Secular Growth Trends in Global Markets. Now, Pavel, I'm going to maybe start off with you. Hopefully, you can share your perspective with us on what's been happening in Europe with COVID-19 and how different countries are handling the reopening of their economies. I mean, frankly, you're, you're seeing this on a firsthand basis. <laughs> yes, thank you for that question. So, yes, I have been here for the last several weeks and uh, had the opportunity to kind of compare and contrast the situation from our area in New York and here in uh, Eastern Europe. What I would say here, clearly, that the situation is steadily normalizing and improving. I think people are trying to get on with their lives, adjust to the life with, with the virus. As a way of background, I would say, remember that the lockdowns in Eastern Europe, more broadly Germany, Eastern Europe, uh, in response to what was happening in Italy, were much more rapid than in Western Europe. So the pandemic was, let's say, better contained here than, let's say, in Spain or, or the UK. Right now, uh, lockdowns are over. But many restrictions are, of course, still in place. Masks have to be worn in public transport and public indoor spaces. Of course, social distancing is required and so on and so forth. But I would say that people generally have adjusted their behavior and are pretty disciplined about these new measures. So when I look at activity, social activity, economic activity, it's clearly improving. Summer has ended. Now schools now have fully opened in person. Many offices are also now opened, although sometimes mostly in hybrid format. Generally, health authorities have been relatively successful in containing small local outbreaks of the virus. But I think what is clearly encouraging is that when we look at hospitalization rates and when we look at death rates, you know, luckily they are very depressed and much, much lower than what we have experienced at the beginning of the pandemic. So the situation is, I think, clearly improving despite the fact that we see some increase in new cases maybe because we're testing more, maybe because the lockdowns are, are over, but I think generally the situation is much more under control. What I will also observe is that COVID had a very different impact here on different segments of the, of the economy. When you look at some segments, like let's say 
the travel industry, clearly it's still very, very depressed and very weak. But when we look at other segments of the economy, let's say online commerce, this industry is clearly booming. So segments like e-commerce are a clear beneficiary of these changing uh, consumer behaviors. That's a really interesting observation, right? There, there are secular trends that are they're happening not only in the U.S., but around the globe, right? Work from home. I wonder how much staying power work from home will have once we have a vaccine. But nonetheless, that does seem to be a secular trend. You mentioned electronic payments, online shopping versus in-person buying. I mean, just recently, I never thought I would do this in my lifetime, but I actually bought a car online, having never <laughs> seen it, never drove it. And it just showed up in front of my house one day. So people are are actively changing the way that they behave. Now, Elisa, are, are you seeing the same secular trends outside of the U.S. that we're seeing here domestically? Well, we believe actually they're relatively the same because we do believe that human behavior is generally not that dissimilar around the world. What we do think, however, what matters is what is the trajectory of of starting points and ending points and, and how those things can be different and how those growth rates can be different. So those are some of the things that we really look at when sort of evaluating some of these trends and growth rates and and where the opportunities lie. So when we think about penetration as an example of e-commerce, we know that, for an example, that Japan is relatively far behind in terms of e-commerce and and sort of the development of, of digital whereas you have economies like China where it's very advanced and the U.S. is is below China. So we have levels that are sort of all over the place. And frankly, that's what creates interesting, we think, investment opportunities is being able to capitalize on some of those trends where you see things that are more advanced. You sort of understand what happens with earnings and margins, et cetera, and that can provide some very interesting opportunities. Labor markets, the level of social safety spending, that's very different across different geographies. We do know, as an example, that Europe has a pretty robust social safety nets. Uh, that has implications for spend and, and other interesting initiatives. Uh, healthcare is an example where, where that is, is already paid for by most areas outside the U.S. And again, that has implications for consumer spend. Digital payments and, and how markets sort of deal and transact cash versus non-cash, again, a very different starting points and we think creating very different opportunities across the space. Certainly, you mentioned work from home, Jeff, but also some other trends that we think will be broadly uh, sort of universal across different geographies. AI is something that we are just starting to really focus on in markets. I think that's going to be something that'll be very interesting. And 5G is something maybe um, maybe not as long dated as AI, but we are all going to be talking a lot about 5G, the development of 5G for the next, uh, I think, year or two in terms of investment opportunities. Sure. Yeah. 5G is going to open up a whole host of uh, opportunities for advancement that we can't even imagine 10 or 20 years from now. And it kind of brings me to my next focal point is is tech, right? If I saw an interesting chart the other day, I've never seen a chart that I didn't like, first of all, but uh, <laughs> the chart showed the NASDAQ's market cap and that it's larger than the nominal GDP of the EU 27. I mean, it approached these levels in 2000, and we've clearly eclipsed it. And, you know, I'd make the argument that a lot of these tech companies, their valuations are based on actual earnings. So it is different today versus 20 years ago. But there's a lot of people that think there's a a little bit of frothiness to the tech sector overall. 
Now, is that frothiness in the tech sector overseas as well, Pavel? And how are you managing your tech exposure given the, the large move that we've seen from the lows in March? Sure. That's a good question about tech and our tech exposure. Let, let me start by saying that the way our process works, we will always navigate the, the strategy towards what we think are mispriced growth opportunities. And our sector weights will, will vary over time. Yes, right now we, we are overweight, the technology uh, sector, but that's the result of our process and that's where our bottom-up stock picking led us to. But when I look at our tech sector, what we, what we really like about this is that our exposure there is, is really a set of diversified and I would say somewhat uncorrelated ideas. So what I mean by this, we own companies which first are diversified in terms of revenue drivers and second, also diversified across the so-called buckets of growth or stages of growth, if you want. And we think that diversification is very important to, con- to understand how we control the, the volatility in, in the strategy. So first, in terms of revenue drivers, in that sector, we own companies which are exposed to a wide range of industries. So we have travel exposure, e-commerce, banking software, digital payments, computing, et cetera. So we think we have exposure to very different industry cycles, and that reduces the, the, the risks of, of, of that exposure. And secondly, I mentioned exposure to different buckets of growth. So we own companies that have different growth rates. So on one hand, we would own um, right now companies in a so-called emerging growth bucket. So these are companies that have very high growth rates. Companies like TeamViewer, Adian, and StoneCo in digital payments, where, where growth rates are way, way ahead of the market. But we also, on the other hand, own companies which are uh, we call secular growers. These are companies like Temenos or XML, where growth is also but stronger than market, but more moderate, but where profitability levels are very high and much more, much more stable. And we think that through this diversification, through end markets and type of growth, we achieve significant risk, uh, risk reduction in, in the strategy. We know that different type of growth companies do perform differently in different market regimes. So to sum up, the current exposure is the result of our process. We feel well because we think that uh, the strategy is well diversified across each, se- each sector, by the way. And of course, each company also have a very sound individual investment thesis and uh, good upside to target price. Great, great perspective. Uh, Alisa, any further perspective on whether tech is frothy, how you're, how you're kind of looking at that space? Right. I think one of the things that we think as portfolio managers, you're always being charged to do is really evaluate your position sizes, ensure that you have the right level of active risk. Uh, in your portfolio and manage it appropriately as you sort of approach target prices or or meet your target prices. We always manage our position sizes for the risk of those individual ideas. We do avoid concentration risk. We believe that's critical to provide good downside protection. That's something we think is a hallmark of the strategy. And we continue to maintain our valuation approach to growth. So we will trim, we will sell as we get near and, and, and get to price targets. And there will always be, we feel, new opportunities which present more upside, uh, potentially less risk that we can add into the portfolio. So it's a very dynamic process but we think being cognizant of concentration, target prices, and managing that, that's, that's our job. And that's something that you know, we'll continue to do. Now, Pavel mentioned you, you did have us overweight to tech, but there's obviously other areas in the portfolio that you have some exposure to. So where are you finding other investment opportunities outside of tech specifically? And do valuations still remain compelling? I mean, most major indices around, you know, call it 35 to 55% off of the base that we saw in, in March. Mm. Pavel, maybe uh, you can sure. weigh in? 
So to be honest, we see good investment opportunities across most sectors. The way we look for new ideas, we of course have our own uh, you know, uh, screens. We also work intensively with our analysts looking at industry trends, regulation, but we do actually spend a lot of time looking at technology trends and new technologies because we do think technology evolution, if you want, can impact all, all sectors. So where we spend a lot of time and what we monitor carefully is a, is a long list of various technologies, everything from sensors, artificial intelligence, computing, etc. Technologies which have been improving very rapidly in the past years and will continue to improve rapidly in the, in the next several years. And we know that they can converge and if they are combined with entrepreneurs can combine them with new business models, they have the potential to be very disruptive. They can create significant change in in many industries. We have already seen this in retail. Right? Retail has been disrupted by e-commerce. Transportation is being disrupted by uh, lithium-ion uh, battery and electric cars and so on and so forth. So we think pretty much everything, energy, banking, etc., will be to some degree disrupted by this acceleration in, in technology. So one way we look to, for new ideas also outside of tech, we want to partner with companies that you know, embrace disruption, that are driving disruption. Of course, we want to avoid industries and companies that are that are being disrupted. So just, just to give you an example of another sector, so in the, in the power space or energy space more broadly, we expect major disruption over the next 5, 15 years because of progress and convergence of, of a number of technologies, right? So battery energy storage, lithium-ion batteries, solar photovoltaic, and wind power are, are improving very rapidly. Costs and capabilities of these technologies have been improving and will continue to improve over the next several years. Already solar and wind are cheaper, one of the cheapest sources of, of power in many, many places. So in this sector, we do not own traditional energy companies, but we have partnered with companies that benefit from the, this disruption. So for example, we own in a strategy company that makes electronic devices that are uh, attached to solar installations, solar panels to make these solar installations more energy efficient and safer. And uh, we like that story. We think that the long-term growth opportunity there is still, is still misunderstood. So we find ideas across all uh, sectors, also through the eye of technology, interestingly. That's, of course, not the only way how we look for ideas. We also spend a lot of time, you know, we pay attention to changing policies. We look at current stimulus plans and how they can drive many changes and investment and, and create investment opportunities. We have spent some time recently looking into the European Green Deal plan, for example, and uh, we think we can find some interesting ideas driven by these changes uh, created by these new stimulus plans. Yeah, you, you got to gotta follow the money, right? Uh, follow money and uh, obviously it could be very creative to earnings over a longer period of time. And you, you mentioned the, the green stimulus deal out of Europe. And obviously a lot of this rebound has been predicated on extreme amount of stimulus from a monetary and a fiscal perspective. Everybody talks about the U.S. fiscal package and how big it was, but actually a lot of the fiscal packages outside of the U.S. were much larger as a percent of GDP. And unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get another fiscal package here out of Washington in the next two weeks. It's not looking too bright. So, Alisa, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the stimulus that uh, that you're seeing overseas and you know, whether or not that could be a potential uh, accelerant uh, having relative outperformance for overseas markets versus the U.S. Sure. So when you look at the level of monetary and fiscal stimulus that you've seen around the world, actually Japan put forth the largest stimulus. So something like 60 plus percent of GDP came from monetary and fiscal stimulus. 
Europe was uh, about 45%. That was kind of in line with what we saw in the U.S. at 44. The U.K. was about half that level, actually more than half, at 20.5%. And China was actually the least at 18%. So you really had quite a bit of variability in terms of fiscal responses. Now, the U.K. has been a little bit complicated by sort of renewed issues over Brexit, whether they come up with another stimulus package, um, I mean, their their politics seem to be quite volatile. It's it's certainly a, you know something that that could happen, but I'd say at the moment everything is is a bit hostage to to Brexit. I think what we find so interesting about what's happened in Europe is is again this European Green Deal we think is is really very intriguing. Of course, there is government initiatives in sort of the plus trillion dollar level, but then there will also be a lot of subsidies and a lot of private partnerships, which will probably get to about $7 trillion, which is, which is very large. You know, this is about really being very advanced in terms of climate change. These are really interesting initiatives. We think this is something that is sort of critical for our planet, and it's certainly we're, we're very excited to invest behind. Japan is talking about uh, another pandemic sort of fiscal response. It's about $2 billion dollars. This will be oriented toward issues like nearshoring of production back to Japan or in other locations, potentially from China. It's also talking about digital initiatives to actually modernize the Japanese economy, which, as I said earlier, is is a bit behind in terms of digital. So I think there will be more and more initiatives. And to the extent it's about modernizing an economy and allowing them to thrive uh, relative to where they are today and change the competitive landscape for them, I think these are something that are that are very important. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to note that most of the U.S. fiscal stimulus package was front-loaded, so it's uh, already being used up, where if you look at Europe, for example, they've succeeded in putting together a package that's going to underwrite GDP through 2021, similar thing with, with Japan as well. Um, but you did mention China. And, you know, obviously China didn't do the largest stimulus package. They certainly stimulated the corporate sector, through the state-owned enterprises and the local government financing vehicles, which is a little bit different than what they've done in 2012 and 15, where they levered up to households. But uh, nonetheless, China seems to be figuring this out quite quickly. And uh, they, their economy is not really feeling the effects of COVID at this point outside of consumer spending trends. But tensions with the U.S. and China are, are escalating here, right? Obviously, with the TikTok situation, threatening of delisting of stocks on the U.S. Uh, bourses, I mean, how, how do you evaluate these geopolitical issues as fundamental investors? Elisa, how do you approach this situation? So I'll, I'll just say one thing about TikTok. Um, there's certainly a lot of conversation about TikTok. Um, but if you look at, at what China allows from U.S. sort of large uh, social media players like Facebook and Google, they're not allowed. So Talking about how this TikTok thing may not happen, I, I don't think this should be a particularly huge surprise to anyone, but it's getting an awful lot of airplay. In terms of evaluating sort of these geopolitical issues, I'd say the following. One of the things that we are always evaluating is whether government issues and geopolitical issues will actually bleed into what's happening uh, in the companies and, and, and private sector. Uh, so we're not invested in the, in the China uh, state-owned enterprise sector. But we are invested in these public companies, which we think are very dynamic and are and are growing uh, very nicely. So what we are watching and we will always watch is whether 
any behavior that the government is doing actually interferes with profitability and returns for shareholders. And if it does, you will see us sell positions, trim positions, et cetera. So, so that's not something that we'll tolerate in our stocks. At the moment, uh, we're, not, we're not really seeing that happen. So the other thing, we talk a lot about position sizing and managing our position risks. Um, we're quite underweight, I'd say, relative to our peer set in terms of China. We think these are very interesting stories, but our, our overall weight in China, let's say it's about 6 to 8 6%. It's not very high. So we think it's well diversified. We think these these companies are growing very nicely, but we and we don't see a lot of government interference in terms of profitability and growth rates. And so we'll maintain our positions. To the extent that we see that changing, uh, that's something we're always evaluating. We can make decisions then. And, and maybe the last piece of the puzzle to you know investing internationally is what's going to happen with the dollar, right? We've seen the dollar, if you're looking at the DXY, it's down about 9.6%. From its peak back in March, the trade-weighted dollar that the Fed puts out is down about 8%. And that, generally speaking, acts as a nice tailwind for global growth and the total return that you're going to get from international equities. And I think a lot of the factors that made the dollar strong in the first quarter, they've all reversed. Right, First, there used to be an interest rate differential between the U.S. and the rest of the world. Now that the Fed has slashed rates to zero, there's not really any sense of holding the dollars to get that increased rate of return. Also, you saw a sharp flight to quality when everything was selling off aggressively with the dollar swaps that were set up with global central banks. There's an abundance of dollar liquidity right now. In fact, if you look at money supply through July, it was up 38% uh, year over year, which was the strongest money supply rate in 80 years. And then also the relative growth differential of the U.S. versus the global economy. When the global economy is accelerating faster than the U.S., that's usually bad for the dollar. And obviously, with the U.S. dealing with COVID a little bit longer than the rest of the global economy, I think all of these come into a situation where even though we have a lot of people that are positioned short the dollar, you could have a little bit of a reversal here near term. Longer term, I do think the dollar is going to continue to go down and be a nice tailwind to not only global growth, but, but global equities as well. So we're coming up here on, on 25 minutes. I just want to say thank you, Elisa and Pavel, for, for taking the time here, for, for sharing your insights with us. And Pavel, thank you for making this the first international podcast that uh, we've done here at ClearBridge. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Jeff. And I want to thank everybody for listening in here. I sincerely hope that everybody had a safe and enjoyable summer. And we hope you'll continue to join us throughout 2020. And we always welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of September 16th, 2020, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments or its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.